Welcome to The Roundtable, a new quarterly discussion show from Intelligence Fusion. Every three months, our analysts will go deeper into a particular topic and discuss what we've seen in different regions we cover across the world, and hopefully offer some sort of insight into the global threat intelligence picture. This week, we're going to be talking about the relationship between armed groups as well as government groups and the mining and oil sector. So obviously, this is quite a broad question and it impacts the entire globe. So just to get the ball rolling then, Vincent, which groups in the Americas region are actually involved in this process? Yeah, so I think in the Americas, it kind of depends on the country. Um, So in the likes of Mexico, uh, you have a a number of cartels, especially kind of in central Mexico, um, like the cartel de Santa Rosa de Lima uh, in the state of Guanajuato. uh, And they've kind of been involved in, in, in fuel fuel theft and fuel trafficking in in that region because of a big uh, refinery uh, in Salamanca. Um, But then if you go to the likes of, say, Colombia um, in South America, you got the likes of the ELN, uh, the National Liberation Army, um, or even uh, dissidents from the FARC uh, who demobilized in uh, 2016. Um, But the remnants have been involved in the likes of illegal mining, uh, not only in Colombia, but also in Venezuela, uh, where in that region you kind of have small-scale Venezuelan paramilitaries called colectivos, uh, as well as kind of um, the state, so the military and the government kind of being involved uh, in collaboration with some of these smaller groups to exploit um, illegal mining. So, Viraj, uh, is it the same sort of groups in Africa? Is it mostly militant groups, government groups, whatever? Yeah, so again, similarly to Vincent, uh, if you know different different areas of Africa, there are different groups involved. So if you look at the DRC, for example, uh, you have Myanmar groups uh, involved. You know, some of them control hundreds of sites. Some of them don't control many. Uh, again, they, they each have their own sort of diverse sources of income. Um, but if you look at West Africa and the Sahel, where Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS operate, uh if you look at you know the recent example where uh, 160 people were killed in Burkina Faso in, so- in a small village called Solhan, uh, and that's sort of the deadliest attack that's happened in the country's history. And uh, a former minister, after the attack, he he claimed that uh, uh, part of the motivation or part of the terrorist group's desire was to gain control of artisanal mining sites to exploit. And um, in Burkina Faso, you know, about 700 to 800 sites of small-scale mining sites. Uh, and eat, and when you look at the country as a whole, uh, there's 1 million people that work at these sites. And, uh, you know, given that uh, these uh, jihadist groups also operate in the likes of Mali and uh, Niger as well, um, collectively, you know, if you, if you combine Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger, uh, they sort of... Imp- they have 2 million people working at uh, these sites collectively. And of course, um, just like in the DRC, uh, these groups have diverse sources of income. But uh, over the past two or three years, you know, where the gold prices have really skyrocketed, uh, small, uh, small-scale mining sites is something that jihadist groups are have or have increasingly looked to sort of exploit. How about you, Max? Yeah. Like, what do you see in the Middle East? The trend definitely carries over from Africa a bit, I think, with the jihadists and the militant groups uh, using it uh, or exploiting it. So uh, Middle East in particular, Islamic State obviously is a massive uh, massive actor in the Middle East region, even to this day, despite them allegedly being defeated. So in Islamic State, not so much anymore, but back uh, four or five years ago, the group was very much in control of the oil fields in, in East and Syria, as well as in parts of Iraq. So they were a major player and they were then selling it on to other various other 
including international states at times, but we'll come on to that later. Uh, another another smaller militant groups have have used it to subsidize their income as as Raj said it's just part of a sort of broader portfolio of ways that they they make money so a series of, it's mostly militant groups across the middle east criminal groups are often incorporated into this so they may work alongside these militant groups or they may even have been sort of extorted into it and generally local criminal traffickers are heavily involved in the uh, in the process of transporting it and not just criminal traffickers also just uh, local entrepreneurs who take it to the local economies as well so it's a, it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big. I guess you could call it a, a pyramid almost of groups involved. But generally speaking, Islamic State being one of the biggest and most powerful non-state groups in the region, very much sits at the top of this pyramid. Moving moving eastwards away from there towards uh, cent- uh, Central and South Asia region, I don't want to you know pick out one example for each country, but one that comes to mind actually is the Taliban. The Taliban in Afghanistan, and the Taliban are a good example because they're not necessarily defined by the fact that they've uh, they've they've made money from from mining, but g- generally speaking, they have used it as a as a resource, and they have called upon it. And uh, again, similar to methods that we've seen in Africa and the Middle East, they've they've taxed it, and they haven't necessarily directly controlled it, but they've simply allowed it to take place in their territory. So yes, the Taliban are making money off mining, but then to say that they're essentially their whole campaign, that all their offensives are built around mining, would be an oversimplification. It's simply just a a way of making money among other ways. And then I'll just finish it off with a case study from East Asia, just to cover the, cover the whole, whole region. Uh, in East, East Asia, in Myanmar in particular, uh, mining has been an, quite an important part of the ongoing civil war as both the rebel groups and the government forces actually have used it as a way of funding their conflict. Government forces are much more heavily involved and with it being government as well, it's much easier for them to then sell it on a, a, overseas, particularly to China. Myanmar is a big supplier of rare earth material to China. So, Similar to Africa, the, the main groups you've got are these militant groups, these mili- uh, military groups rather than criminal groups, although criminal groups, it should be added, are heavily involved. And in some situations as well, governments are involved, whether that be indirectly or directly. So with that in mind, so we've, got, we've outlined which groups or which types of groups are actually involved. How do these groups then actually make money out of it? Because you see a lot in the news about this, these groups making money from oil, but then it's not like these are being made in, in sales in the conventional way. It's not like these are, it's not like Islamic State has necessarily an oil company which is able to sell these resources on, on open markets. It has to be done normally by quite clandestine methods. So what, how are these groups in your regions actually making money from this process? Yes, yeah, so I guess in, in the Americas, so I think um, in, in kind of a previous uh, question I mentioned, kind of the cartels in Mexico. So um for them in terms of exploiting uh, both mining and kind of oil and gas sectors. So in in regards to mining, uh, it's a bit less developed. So you've got the likes of armed robberies uh, of companies uh, for millions uh, of U.S. dollars worth of gold, uh, including one uh, a few years back where they used a plane in order to escape from the mine uh, in the state of Sonora. Um, So it's it's quite criminal um, activity. And then you also get the likes of extorting uh, companies that operate in kind of the rural areas where cartels do control a significant amount of territory. Uh, in regards to kind of cartels and the oil and gas uh, sector, so you get the extortion, uh, you get the kidnapping um, as well. Um, but what they do is also install kind of illegal pipeline uh, taps um, on pipelines belonging to the state oil company Pemex, uh, especially kind of in the states of central Mexico where most of the refinery uh, power is um, and then they use um, that to then kind of sell it on the domestic market and for them it was uh, kind of a transition and um, the diversification of revenue like Viraj mentioned like you mentioned um, because cartels have primarily been heavily involved in 
uh, extortion of businesses, but also drug trafficking to towards the U.S. And so I think uh, the revenue gained from kind of uh, fuel trafficking uh, was useful because it nev- it not it didn't really uh, ne- necessitate uh, the moving of fuel towards uh, a bo- across the border uh, because the domestic consumption was enough for them to to kind of make money uh, in that regards. Uh, in regards to kind of South America, so you have a the ELN. Um, in Colombia, who not only is involved in illegal mining, but also kind of there's been incidents where security forces have dismantled uh, illegal fuel refineries. Um, and they've also been uh, involved kind of in uh, extorting uh, and kidnapping oil workers uh, and oil companies, especially in departments of Roca and north of the Santander, where the Caño Limón pipeline passes uh, through and over the years has been heavily targeted uh, by IEDs. Uh, in terms of kind of the illegal mining uh, part of them uh, in in Colombia, um, states uh, departments. I mean, uh, like Antioquia has seen kind of uh, quite a significant amount of activity from VLN and also FARC dissidents, um, and kind of like Viraj mentioned, kind of the taxing of uh, small scale miners, artisanal miners, um, the taxing of equipment, but also kind of the operation of their own sites and the the territory that they control um, in, in the departments on the eastern. Uh, border of Colombia with Venezuela has allowed them to kind of operate not only in Colombia, but also uh, across the border in Venezuela. And that's where it gets interesting because um, the the state, the, the Maduro government of Venezuela then plays uh, a, a factor uh, within kind of the way they make money. So the connection between the government and the, these groups, so how are, how are they actually selling it? Like what's the, what's this actual process? Yeah, so in, in Venezuela, kind of the primary area where where uh, the ELN uh, operates is called the Orinoco Mining Arc, uh, which spans across the states of Amazonas, Bolivar, and Delta Amacuro, and it's approximately the size of Portugal. Um, so there, um, there, there's kind of s- uh, several actors, not only the ELN that operates in that areas, but also kind of Venezuelan uh, paramilitaries called colectivos, uh, and then kind of uh, Venezuelan military also. Um, plays uh, a role there um, and they all um, their activities aren't necessarily uh, by operating or owning kind of illegal mining sites but also the levying of taxes on small-scale miners um, the levying of taxes on the transportation so it said that the ELN um, kind of controls uh, one of the main routes uh, from east to west um, across those states which sees illegal mining where they can then levy uh, taxes uh, and fees from kind of the truckers and, and the transporters of this gold. Uh, where where kind of the Maduro regime comes into play um, is that the state enterprises kind of play in the security forces, legitimizes otherwise illegal mining and collaborates with illegal groups to mine, process, and transport minerals. Uh, so state enterprises will source minerals from illegal mining operations and then export them uh, officially to other countries like Turkey uh, the United Arab Emirates, um, but also if if those groups kind of want to make money, we'll also see smuggling through Guyana, through Brazil, uh, through Colombia, and then through unscrupulous um, businesses in those countries uh, get the gold into the legal kind of market. Mm-hmm. And we also see that via Curaçao, Aruba, and Bonaire, which are kind of the Dutch Caribbean islands uh, just north of Venezuela. Um, so the, the, the role of the government in, in this regard is kind of serves as a sort of intermediary um, and then they get a kickback of their own, which allows them to kind of survive uh, the U S imposed sanctions on Venezuela's 
um, other industries like the oil and gas industries, which has suffered tremendously over over the years uh, in the country. So in Africa then, Viraj, I assume it would be less about the criminal groups that Vincent mentioned and more about the militant groups, which I guess could actually be more difficult. So how do these illegal militant groups actually make money from, you are talking earlier about these small-scale mines and other, other resources, how are they actually making money from these resources? Yeah, so if we were to use uh, Burkina Faso, you know, for example, um, so these small-scale mining sites, they collectively produce about 30 tonnes of gold uh, and uh, per year. And, and of course, this is Burkina Faso alone, not not taking you know into account Niger and Mali, uh, where jihadist groups also operate, uh, especially you know along the tribal uh, area. Um, so as as Vincent uh, Vincent mentioned, uh, he you know how the armed groups in uh, America how they uh, sometimes they tax these groups operating in uh, small scale small scale mining sites uh, in. Uh, in the Sahel region or West Africa, they uh, they, they employ similar sort of mechanisms. Uh, so if if they don't control these sites, uh, they'll collect taxes. Uh, sometimes they'll even guarantee the security of uh, small scale miners, um, and they'll also buy gold, you know, at marketing at market price from from these uh, uh, miners. And there are also different groups, you know, of course, involved in the smuggling or transfer of, of illicitly sourced gold, small-scale mining source gold. So, uh, again, with Burkina Faso, most of the gold uh, uh, sourced in Burkina Faso is smuggled into Togo. Uh, you know, th- there's low tax rates in Togo. There's also, a, you know, the issue of porous borders. And uh, uh, this gold is uh, eventually, you know, eventually makes its way to Dubai, and uh, from Dubai, uh, it's sort of mixed in or uh, sort of blended with other gold from other regions of the world. And gold is very, uh, it's very difficult to trace, chemically trace, um, you know, unlike diamonds, for example. And, uh, you know, this is how these armed groups, uh, the house, uh, they sort of monetize or make money out of uh, small-scale mining. It's, it's just through the exploitation. Of course, as I mentioned uh, previously, with uh, the prices of gold, uh, increasing, you know, over the past two or three years, uh, this is it's sort of added incentive for these armed groups to be involved in uh, small-scale mining. And uh, with these, with their sort of uh, regional ambitions that these groups have, uh, it's it's within their interest to get involved in this uh, increasingly lucrative trade. And so, because kind of it's a lucrative trade and these armed groups, has it kind of led to higher rates of kind of insecurity in the areas where we do see illegal mining? Do we see these groups clash to against one another uh, in order to kind of control territory where uh, the small-scale mining operations are? So there have been clashes between uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups uh, in the Sahel or West Africa. And uh, although there are many reasons you know, behind these clashes, uh, it is thought to be that uh, control of some of these sites is part of the reason why we've seen these clashes. Okay. And Max, how about yourself, like in the Middle East? Because I know you mentioned um, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq and kind of controlling these these sites. Um, how, how do they exploit and monetize kind of the oil and gas sector in those areas? And I guess in Asia, more of the mining. Yeah, so... Islamic State were actually a really interesting example. So we, you know, you guys have spoken a lot about the actual method. So I'll talk about a few of the interesting themes that came up with this funding side of it as well. So when Islamic State took control of uh, the oil fields in Syria, in the Deir Ezzor province in the east, the Syrian government suddenly found itself in a position when its its traditional 
uh, uh, income from oil in eastern eastern Syria in there as well, which is gone, and it was now in the control of the people who they're actually fighting against. So they found themselves in a position when they were buying oil uh, from Derazor province. And whilst it wasn't being bought directly from Islamic State, they were well aware that the Islamic State was benefiting because this oil was coming from Islamic State-owned oil wells. So Islamic State had quite a lot of leverage from this actually as well. So the so they were selling it off both locally and then the traffickers from these the traffickers that would or the transporters that would wait outside of these uh, oil wells would uh, take it to other parts of, from Syria and from there it would find itself in the hands of the Syrian government, Turkish government, Jordanian government in in Lebanon, in in Iraq, wherever it may be. So Islamic State actually had quite a lot of control and therefore had quite a lot of financial. Uh, Financial leverage, so they, which they used. The actual the actual prices which they sold it off off at varied quite a lot. So I've seen some reports saying that they sold it uh, below market value, which essentially uh, sort of inflated, uh, uh, saturated the market with this cheap oil, which brought prices down regionally. But then other times they sold it more expensive at a local level, simply because they knew they could. It was in such short supply, and people needed it just to get by. But they knew they could sell it for quite a lot of money. So yeah, actual estimates as to how much they're earning a day completely vary. And I suspect that a lot of these estimates that we see, just simply because of the sheer volume of of uh, the, the sheer size, the scale that these guesses are coming in at, I suspect a lot of them are just simply guesses. So I don't really want to spend too much time quoting on it because it also varies quite a lot month by month as well. And as we, as you, as you, as any listeners probably know, Islamic State has actually lost a lot of its control over these oil wells now. But it's uh, so it's less of an issue for the group. But it's. Um, Nonetheless, it was an interesting theme I thought within it, which is exactly how they sell it. And these, lo- and as you guys have both said with your own as well, it's these local intermediaries, which are I would say the important part, especially for oil, because oil is very easy to transport. Unlike uh, unlike a lot, of, uh, a lot of mining materials, it's uh, which can be a little bit more tricky, a little bit more bulky. Oil is actually quite easy, and we found that in Syria itself. And um, also. So Islamic State, we spoke about that. I just want to speak a bit about the Taliban. We mentioned them earlier as well with um, not necessarily being, you know, a mining-based insurgency. There's much more to the Taliban than simply that, and it's just a small part of it. But, you know, we've spoken about how they control it, but it's also important. A lot of these wells are able to operate actually almost unaffected by the uh, the change of territory. And in Afghanistan, that sometimes is the case in that they're just simply permitted to operate in Taliban territory. Where, Like in, in terms of territory, where do these operations kind of... Uh, where in Afghanistan, I guess, is kind of those mining sites kind of... So across the country, okay. but generally, I would say Badakhshan province, which is sort of in the border area with um, with Tajikistan, is probably the most mine-rich area. And these a lot of the places here, yes, the Taliban have a significant amount of influence over these places in their control. But the uh, they have been able to operate, and the Taliban aren't actually... They don't own the mines, they just simply own the territory. And it, essentially, the position you are in as a mine owner in this situation is don't cooperate with the Taliban and either get kicked out or at worst killed or cooperate with the Taliban and be allowed to continue normally. So there's, a, there's elements. And so whilst these, these areas are in ter- Taliban territory, they're not necessarily Taliban possessions, if that makes sense. And so that's, that's just part of it. But another theme actually that I'd like to sort of bring up is actually how they recruit. And this is something that I, I was doing a bit of research for this podcast and I was finding it quite tricky to actually comprehend how these oil wells were able to carry on functioning, even after they've been sort of captured by groups like Islamic state or Al Qaeda line groups. And a bit of research showed that basically Islamic State was um, was recruiting via offering pretty huge financial incentives to sympathizers that had worked in the oil industry already in other parts of the world, and they were bringing them in to carry on the uh, and they're bringing in to carry on the production. And whilst production did actually drop in Syrian uh, ISIS-controlled territory, which can be expected with the war going on, it is actually quite remarkable how they managed to at least keep the pumps going and they managed to keep the oil going out with it being such a precious resource for them. 
And these foreign volunteers were some, uh, not volunteers, so these foreign uh, recruits were some, sometimes getting quite huge amounts of, uh, uh, quite huge salaries compared to other foreign fighters in the country. And it just shows how important that financial resources was to the Islamic State. And I'm sure other groups as well, which if they had the, uh, which have the resources. So that's interesting because then that shows the Islamic State kind of incentivizing um, individuals to come work for them. While, like I said, in Mexico, it's more uh, kind of oil oil and gas workers maybe getting kidnapped in yeah. order to kind of use that expertise to um, then install illegal pipeline taps uh, or also maybe use uh, extortion and threats to employees that might work at the refinery to then uh, provide information to the cartels in terms of uh, when the pipeline might be in use mm. um, and kind of other data that might be necessary for then cartels to exploit and those illegal pipeline taps and, and pull out the fuel uh, at the right times. Uh, to, can, to get the most out of it, basically. Uh, so it's interesting, kind of, the differentiation between kind of uh, militant groups and kind of criminal groups across the world and how they operate and to kind of get what they need to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with that said, um, there's, there's definitely an element of um, coercion with Islamic State as well. Yeah. So there's anecdotal reports, for example, of people that worked in the oil industry already in Syria before Islamic State took over being offered a job. And so the offer was there, but it's yeah. the... Uh, I guess the suggestion is if you don't take it, you're in trouble. So a lot of them said they fled to Turkey or wherever after they turned down the offer, if they turned it down. So yeah, there's, there's definitely coercion as well, I guess. But yeah, I think um, Islamic State's financial incentives that they tried to offer were certainly indicative of what their priorities were in terms of when it came to funding and how important they saw it as a funding resource. So our final section then is a bit more broad now, and it is what is the actual impact of this on the oil and gas or the mining sector? So all this illegal activity, all this militant activity and militant control of uh, quite vital assets within this within the sector must have some sort of impact. So what what impacts have you guys seen within your respective regions? Yes, yeah, so I guess it's, the business impacts are quite broad. It can lead from reputational to security threats um, to yeah, a variety of kind of different impacts on it. Um, so the likes, uh, we talked a lot about kind of artisanal miners uh, and criminal groups kind of exploiting that. So um, one example I, I just want to bring up real quick is kind of in Suriname. So the I Am Gold uh, mine, there has um, several sites in the Brocopondo district uh, where artisanal miners kind of would encroach on, on those mines uh, in order to legally mine. And um, that led to several months of uh, basically the mines closing down. Uh, and then security forces having to come kick out the artisanal miners. Uh, at some point, there's been deaths recorded. So it, it does uh, kind of, it can impact operations uh, in, in that regard. And then kind of just, the, we talked about the kidnapping. So in Colombia, the kidnapping of oil workers, uh, which leads to potentially companies paying ransom to get them freed, um, which kind of is uh, a bit on the down low and not always... Um, revealed whether they have paid the ransom or not to get the release of their workers. But if they did, it could also impact kind of reputation of the companies um, because some of these groups like the ELN um, are considered a terrorist organization by the State Department in the U.S. Um, so it, it all that is kind of um, could potentially yeah lead to reputational impacts for the company and potentially legal action um, if, if they are doing business with groups considered terrorist. Um, but I think the, the biggest impact is that kind of a security security aspect because a lot of oil and gas sites uh, in the Americas uh, or even mining sites in 
kind of Mexico uh, are in rural areas where cartels or illegal armed groups in uh, South America do control territory. So to in order to operate there um, will likely require kind of companies to at least have dialogue with certain groups in order to operate safely um, and with duty of care with both international and national staff members. Um, but I think, yeah, for the future we'll see with a shift in kind of green energies will provide probably opportunities for armed groups to exploit um, because more companies will be looking at rare earth minerals, like you mentioned in Myanmar. Uh, we'll be looking at lithium uh, in order to make electric car batteries and things of that nature. And one of the biggest lithium deposits is in the state of Sonora in northern Mexico. Um, but that's also a state where there's a high level of uh, cartel activity. So uh, in order for a company to do business there, um, they'll be in trouble <laughs> in terms of the security situation. So yeah, that is something to, to take in consideration. Um, how about yourself, Viraj, in Africa? Yeah, so in Africa, uh, I think the obvious sort of consequence of the growth in uh, involvement in the ex- extractive sector of you know, jihadist groups in the Sahel region, for example, is that these groups uh, become stronger. And if they become stronger, and of course we know with their regional ambitions, then they will start to encroach in areas where mining uh, well, mining companies already operate. And this is an obvious threat to their operations. And uh, if there is an, uh, you know, a direct attack on mining sites, then there is easily uh, you know, uh, a chance that these groups will conduct ambushes, for example, as they have in Burkina Faso against uh, convoys of mining companies. Uh, they may look to extort uh, mining companies uh, you know, given that they may not control areas close to these sites, but they may control uh, routes, you know, flowing in and out of these sites. But uh, also, I think there's the, the other um, impact, which is uh, if, you know, Burkina Faso, again, with that many people employed in the sector, you know, one million people. Um, so recently with the attack in Solhan, in, uh, you know, in Burkina Faso, close to the border with Niger, uh, following that attack, uh, authorities order the closure of artis- artisanal mines uh, in two of the provinces, uh, which because they consider you know these these mines to be a source of funding for armed groups, and uh, with action being taken you know against uh, or looking with the authorities looking to close these sites, that would impact on uh, hundreds of thousands of people you know employed in the sector, and this would uh, mean that these thousands of people are you know left disaffected. And uh, they may, you know, there's sort of uh, the social contract that government ha- government may have with these people will be you know, further sort of uh, degraded. And yeah, this will open up uh, jihadist groups um, with, uh, you know, they'll have the more, more opportunities to sort of exploit uh, the situation and these miners, uh, you know, they may sort of uh, gain more influence in uh, and around these sites. Uh, they may provide protection to uh, small-scale miners, you know, to continue operating while they, you know, provide them with uh, safety, for example, from the government. Uh, of course, as you mentioned before, Max, with recruitment as well, uh, there's there's obviously, uh, you know, with the different uh, nationalities of people involved in small-scale mining sites, it's not just Burkina Faso uh, nationals that are involved in um, uh, small-scale mining in Burkina Faso, for example, you know, there are uh, nationals from other countries in West Africa also. So yeah, there are, I, I think it fits in well with their regional ambitions. Are there any, f- uh, 
foreign, I guess, Western companies that do operate in those areas and like have they been impacted by the activities of these jihadist groups? So I'm guessing like is there mining activity where maybe uh, foreign companies have told their international workers at least get out of the country because of the activities of these groups in that area? Yeah, so there was a high-profile attack in, I believe, in 2019 in Burkina Faso, and this was uh, in the southern area, southeastern area of Burkina Faso, where jihadist groups now are increasingly um, consolidating their sort of uh, presence. And uh, certainly, you know, with these with these sites located in areas where not just infrastructure, you know, such as poor roads, uh, but also the lack of telecommunications, it leaves them exposed to ambushes again. For example, um, as we saw with Burkina Faso, that was a complex ambush that uh, jihadist groups uh, used against uh, the company operating there. Are we aware of any kind of operations in that area by either kind of a company's uh, hiring PMCs, private military contractors, or um, even kind of uh, local government forces kind of trying to kick out the, uh, the jihadist forces from those areas in order, because I'm guessing it's high revenue for if exactly. a foreign company yeah. is there. So that it, that does affect the state if they're unable, if foreign companies are unable to work in their own uh, areas. Cause I know like in Mexico, they created a special police uh, mining police unit to try to kind of protect uh, mining assets. But some foreign companies have rejected kind of that, um, that offer for help because they just don't trust the skill or the integrity of, um, of the officers involved because it's a country where there's high levels of corruption. So I guess kind of the whole balance of security forces ensuring the security of foreign companies and then foreign companies, do they want that or not? It's kind of a double-edged sword, I suppose. Mm. Uh, yeah. Given the importance of gold as an export for you know, countries such as Burkina Faso, uh, these mining companies are obviously with the attack on Burkina Faso, we saw how, uh, you know, they still are exposed to these attacks, but following that attack, uh, the government did pledge to sort of improve the safety of, of the mining site. Um, I'm not too sure if that mining site is operational at the moment. It's something I'll have to look into. But, uh, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, not just in Burkina Faso, but also in neighboring countries such as Senegal, uh, mining companies do operate in uh, you know areas such as uh, close to Burkina Faso border, for example, and uh, or Mali border, uh, and so, yeah. I mean, given the you know how export, how important these exports are, the governments are certainly looking to protect these sites better. How about you, Max? What are kind of the business kind of implications uh, in your region? The security side of it is you guys have kind of already touched on it, but the security side is without a doubt, I think, the most prominent issue. So. Um, we saw when the Islamic State first became sort of the force that it was back in 2014, 2015, the first thing they were going for was oil resources in uh, Iraq and Syria. And what this goes to show is essentially it militarized oil. So Islamic State used it to directly uh, fund their military activity. And in response, the governments have kind of realized how vulnerable they are. And a lot of Middle Eastern governments, particularly Iraq and Syria, haven't got many uh, exports other than energy, so other than oil. So uh, for them, suddenly control of these... Uh, oil assets became part of their military strategy and as a result they were securitized and they became an easy, uh, a clear target and whilst to this day Islamic State doesn't actually control any of these wells anymore any of these oil production sites or any oil processing sites they still uh, target them quite frequently and that just shows how important they feel it is to the funding of the Iraqi or the Syrian government so the physical security side of these assets in places such as the Middle East to this day uh, remains an incredibly important issue but something that kind of 
a bit different, not necessarily, it doesn't directly affect the sector, but it's, I think it's something the sector should be aware of, is also how these the environmental damage that these uh, seized mines are often causing. So mines often rely on, uh, it's often a, uh, they have to follow set rules, whatever it may be, depending on the country in question. What we're finding is, especially when non-government groups are in control of these mines, these are largely ignored because they simply need the money to fund their to fund their activities. So they'll just take and take and take and take resources just to produce more and more money. And the issue with, with this is mines getting much less safe. So the local workers, are, there's you know, it's quite high casualties among local workers because, generally speaking, these non-state groups or these militant groups, criminal groups, whatever it may be, simply aren't that bothered. These people are in general in general seen as quite replaceable to the groups in control of these mines. So. Places like Myanmar, for example, these mining sites are seeing landslides that simply shouldn't have been happened had the site had been managed effectively with quite high casualties at times and also in some respects in the long term reducing production. So things such as dumping waste into local waterways as well is just going to have a broader and broader impact. And this is just going to add to resentment and and particularly when these communities aren't actually benefiting a lot of the time from these sites. There's an element of, of disconnect, I guess, between the local economy and this mining economy. So when a state, for example, has access to these mines, these oil sites, whatever it may be, they want to use this to fund their conflict against a rebel group, a militant group, whoever it may be. They want to they want to use this to fund themselves. So as a result, the money from these mines, which are increasingly becoming less environmentally sustainable, are also not even an impacting, not really having a positive impact on the communities which you know these environmental issues are damaging. So there's this almost a rift growing in some in some respects both in rebel and government controlled mining and oil and gas sites and i think it's something that sector as a whole should certainly keep an eye on you know it's just exactly what impact is are the local communities having from these mines and again you can see it in balochistan it's less about oil and gas and mining there but more government projects if the local communities feel less likely or feel that they're not getting the support uh, the the benefits that these these product these uh, projects bring in this, and if the if the region in particular is you know quite an underdeveloped region or quite a poor region, then there's going to be this rise in uh, discontent towards these towards not only the government but also specific companies. And we see in Balochistan, for example, especially Chinese companies, which there's a huge amount of resent aimed at them being targeted. And I think that's a big part of it. If the, the communities which are being sort of used to fund the, to to man these mines aren't gaining, then there's going to be a rift between them and the and the companies, the groups, or the governments themselves. Yeah, and I think it goes with just the wider social corporate responsibility, and mm. not just uh, in regards to this podcast in terms of illegal armed groups um, operating uh, mining sites or oil and gas sites, but just in general. Uh, I think there is uh, kind of in certain countries kind of growing resentment, so it's, it is something to keep an eye out because you'll see kind of protests and things like that. And I'm sure in some countries protests may lead to a recruitment tool for some of these armed groups. Mm -hmm. So um, it it is important. Yeah. Like you said, uh, for, for businesses and operating in that sector to keep an eye out um, in that regard. Yeah. I think, I think in many of these countries, you find that uh, many, especially those employed, employed in the small scale mining or even illegal miners, they feel that, uh, uh, Government policy—they feel that government policies are much more uh, favorable to mining companies towards mining companies. So there's already that resentment from you know illegal miners, mm. uh, for example. And we've seen in the past how uh, you know in Senegal, in northeast, southeastern Senegal, where uh, there have been cases where illegal miners have attacked uh, mining companies, and you know often these miners are also you know armed with rifles and machetes, so they could. Uh, they do constitute a significant threat to mining companies and assets personnel. 
Uh, thanks for listening to us this week. The Roundtable will be back in November. And in the meantime, the Insight is released fortnightly on YouTube. These are 10-minute videos discussing a topic, a geopolitical topic or a security-themed topic, which one of our senior analysts will take part in.